Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus says, In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You know, I heard the story of a man who encountered a bit of trouble while he was flying his airplane and he called the control tower and he said, pilot, pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from the airport. I'm 600 feet above ground and I'm out of fuel. I'm descending rapidly. Please advise. Over. Tower to pilot, the dispatcher began. Repeat after me. Our father who art in heaven. As you can imagine, prayer is faith in God and not, and not faith in prayer. Prayer is faith in God, not in prayer, in the sense of not faith in prayer. This particular passage has been called the Lord's Prayer. But it's more certainly and properly called the disciples' prayer. And I'm calling it the citizens' model prayer because it is being prayed in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and citizens of the kingdom. The prayer is also listed in Luke chapter 11 verses 1 through 4 in the context of a conversation where the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray. It's a model prayer or a pattern that helps us organize our prayer needs, our prayer burdens. But it also helps us comply with the will of God. The prayer is striking in its brevity, its simplicity, its completeness. And Jesus will use plural nouns. Our Father in verse 9. Give us, verse 11. Forgive us, verse 12. Lead us, verse 13. It's a corporate prayer. It's a family prayer. And it's part of a corporate family prayer plan, if you will. We sometimes pray alone. We've already seen that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Remember? Jesus said, but, we, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut the door, pray to your Father in the secret place. And he'll answer you openly. There is a place for personal and private prayer. And there is a place for corporate prayer. But in a real sense, when we pray, even when we pray alone, we are praying together because we are a part of a family, it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And Jesus teaches us that when we pray, we put God's concerns first, in verse 9. Our own concerns later. True prayer is based on sonship, not friendship. In the verses preceding our text, remember Jesus talked about the kinds of prayer that God rejects. Boasting prayers, verse 5. Babbling prayers in verses 7 and 8. And we would be hard pressed to, to make this particular prayer or the model prayer a prayer of ritual. A prayer of rote. A babbling prayer. But in this prayer, Jesus lists nine elements or aspects. I'm going to suggest to you that they're aspects of both personal prayer and corporate prayer. It includes faith in verse 9, our Father in heaven. 
Worship in verse 9, hallowed be your name. Expectation in verse 10, may your kingdom come. Submission in verse 10, may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Petition in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Confession in verse 12, forgive us our debts. Compassion and we forgive our debtors. Dependence, verse 13, lead us not into temptation. Acknowledgement at the end of verse 13, Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. And so it begins with a prayer of surrender. Look at verse 9. It says, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Faith and fellowship are linked. God is our father. Look what it says in verse 9. In this manner. What does that mean? Jesus is making a suggestion to you. By the way, have you ever asked anyone for any kind of advice for any reason? Hey, what do you think about this? And usually advice falls into two categories. Those that are, that's asked for that you know no one will ever follow. And, and that which might be followed. Jesus, when he says, in this manner, he is giving us a prescription, if you will, for prayer. Prayer begins in faith. It begins in faith in what sense? Remember, the writer of the New Testament says, those who believe in God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. You believe that there's a real God. Prayer begins with a personal relationship with the God of the Bible. By the way, in the New Testament, Jesus uses the term father 150 times. He uses the word God one time. This speaks of friendship, fellowship, relationship. Prayer continues in worship. Hallowed be your name. The word is an interesting word in the original language. It means to count something as worthy or holy. It means to treat something with a profound sense of respect for what it is. Because it's sacred. It means to count or treat with profound respect. Can we call God our Father and refuse to surrender to God as sovereign? Can we call God Father and then demand a paternity test? You see, the truth is, we call God Father. Because we've been made children of God. And we can't call God Father if we exalt some other God, like materialism, the God of matter, or rationalism, the God of my ability to think things through, or empiricism is the God that I can observe and, and make sense to me. So whether it's idealism, the God of ideas, or, or materialism, the God of the world in which we live, we will sometimes substitute the true God of the Bible. In John's gospel, Jesus claimed that God was his father and he claimed equality with the father. In John chapter 8, verse 17, Jesus said, My father has been working until now, and I've been working in verse 18. And the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In the language, it reads, pater adion. Literally, it's a Greek expression, which means his own father. And so it's absurd to pray to the God of the Bible, and refuse to acknowledge his sovereignty, his ability, his paternity. A person who prays our father is surrendering his or her independence. The moment that you say my father, you are surrendering your terms and you are expecting 
accepting his terms to be the rightful ruler of your life. The moment that you decide to pray, it becomes an acknowledgement that you can't and that he can. You cannot have a personal relationship with God apart from Christ. The Bible says in the opening chapter of John's gospel, he came into his own. And his own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, in verses 11 and 12, no one else has this right. Only those who are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God, in verse 13. No one can call the God of the Bible, your father, unless you've experienced a right relationship with Jesus, his son. This is why John the Apostle, in his little epistle, will later write, he who has the son has the father. And he who does not have the son does not have the father. If you surrender to God... You surrender to heaven. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven. In verse 9, the word is plural. Literally, it says, heavens. If you surrender to God, you surrender to heaven. You're surrendering to a spiritual world. The dimension where God dwells in glory, in power, in finality and majesty. Think it through. With faith comes surrender. With surrender comes worship. The Bible, by the way, speaks of three heavens. The atmosphere which surrounds the earth. And then it speaks of the outer space. The boundaries within our physical universe. As you make your way to the end of our solar system. And and the end of our galaxy. And the end of the universe. But once you've gone past that final place. And you go into another dimension. Where space and time become meaningless. This is the place where God's presence is fully manifested. It's a spiritual place. Now, the danger, of course, is when I use the terms spiritual place, there are people in their mind who think not real. But the Bible says this is the most real place. There is no place more real than this place. The Bible teaches that it's from heaven's vantage That God sees all things. In Psalm 103 verse 19. The Bible says. The throne of God is in heaven. Not outer space. The Bible teaches again. That God sees the sons of men. The inhabitants of the earth. The Bible says he considers their works. And when a person truly surrenders to God. Acknowledges his authority. His majesty. Paternity. Sovereignty. Power. Surrendering. Acknowledging that God is the ultimate source of power and privilege. It's on that basis that there's petition. A petition and a plea. Look at verse 10. It says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Follow the logic. Jesus says, your father is the Lord, the creator of the universe. And that he is the king in a kingdom. He has a kingdom. Prayer by faith. Prayer fueled by worship generates a sense of expectation. And what is it that we can expect? Jesus says, your kingdom come. And remember what a kingdom is. The kingdom is the place where the king is sovereign. Where his rule and his will can be expected. And this is the first request. Let your kingdom come. Right here to the earth. 
the kingdom is, again, the place where God is sovereign. And I think that part of the meaning of the, of the text itself is an invitation to allow Jesus to rule in the hearts of human beings everywhere. When Jesus comes to the end of his life, Pilate says to him, are you a king? And he says, I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world or else my subjects would come and they would fight for me. Let Jesus rule in the hearts of human beings everywhere because you see, if the kingdom is the place where God is sovereign, then there's pockets of resistance. There's pockets of rebellion inside of the human heart for those who refuse his sovereignty and reject his paternity. It's interesting to me, this is the very message of the gospel. Why does Jesus place this petition, this plea first? Because it is the gospel. This is the message Jesus taught and preached. This is the message the early disciples taught and preached and prayed. It is the longing of God when all people everywhere turn from their sin and turn to the Savior as Lord and King. That human beings would personally, willingly, voluntarily submit to him and serve him. And do this all day, every day, in every thought, in every deed. This is is the fabric of our lives, or at least it should be the fabric of our lives. We love him. We live for his majesty. Our efforts and energies are devoted to Christ as king. And so Jesus begins his own preaching message. Remember in Matthew's earlier gospel, chapter 3, verse 2, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 2. Matthew 4, 7, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Chapter 3, heaven is at hand. Chapter 4, heaven is at hand. Here, your kingdom come. What does that mean? Your kingdom come is future. It's a request for something that doesn't actually presently exist. And yet it is available. In what way? A desperate world that is desperate and broken needs help and hope. Our world lies in a state of bitter rebellion, marked by wickedness, consumed and contaminated by evil and murder and injustice and deprivation and hunger. And so God's rule and reign are needed Now, we need his kingdom now. In our hearts, we need justice and provision now. And so we're invited to consider the urgency to pray and to pray consistently. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think for a moment. This is the The prayer's second request. The first request, your kingdom come. The second request, your will be done. In God's kingdom, there is no will other than his will. And this is one of the reasons why we know that it is future, but we also know that it is available. Why? Let me put it to you a little bit differently. There are four wills that demand our love, our loyalty, our obedience. And one of those is our very own will. It's what I want. It's what I want when I want it. The other is the individual and collective demands of everyone that you come in contact with. This is the will of your parents. This is the will of your friends. This is the will of the people who want to influence you. There is your will. There's the will of others, but there's also Satan's will. In John 8, Jesus defends a woman who's caught in adultery and reminds her accusers 
that they're sinners. And then he boldly proclaims to be the light of the world. And the religious leaders in John 8 challenge Jesus. And they ask if, if he's greater than their father Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham ever was, I am. And they understood that Jesus was making an extraordinary claim. The religious leaders claimed freedom. We are free. Because Abraham is our father. And Jesus' response is, you are not free. You are not free because you are in bondage to sin. People who are slaves to sin cannot rightly identify themselves as free. Then Jesus said that Satan was their true father and not Abraham. He said, you're of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you want to do. I want you to think it through. What did they want to do? They wanted to say that they were free apart from Christ. And apart from God's plan and apart from God's purpose. Why did they say that Abraham was their father? Because they refused God as their father. Why does Jesus say that Satan is their father? Because what is it that they want to do more than anything? They want to get rid of Jesus. They want him dead. They want him dead. This is exactly what Satan wanted. You're of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Because he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. There is our will, my will, and then there is everyone else's will, and then there is Satan's will, but then there is God's will. And when Jesus says, you pray, thy will be done, you are inviting God that his desire, his guidance, his instruction, his purposes are going to come to pass. The Bible says in the Old Testament times, God spoke through the prophets, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son. God in the Old Testament spoke through a prophet. He spoke through a cloud. He spoke through a pillar of fire. But God has spoken now. He has spoken now in the person of Jesus. When Jesus was asked the question by the religious leaders, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? It was the religious leader's way of saying, what is it that God wants from us? What is it that I have to do? What is it that God wants? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent, John 6, 28 and 29. Do you want to know what God wants? This is what God wants. God wants you to believe that he sent his son and that in sending his son, there's a provision for you in every single way. There is a love for you and mercy for you and forgiveness for you and hope for you. This is God's will. And in order to do God's will, you have to know God's will. And this is why we study the Bible. This is why we literally take it literally that when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who, who need not be ashamed, God's will is found in God's son. And God's will is found in God's word. And God's will is God's plan in the message of salvation. In our prayer, there is faith. There is worship. There is expectation. There is submission. We know God's will. And then we submit to God's will. You know, when I was preparing this message, I couldn't help but think about the second largest religion on the planet Earth. It's Islam. 
And Muslam and Islam is a word that literally in the Arabic language means submission. In Islam, they begin with submission. But it is a submission that's deeply, deeply disconnected from biblical faith in a biblical God and biblical worship and biblical God-honoring expectations. In Christ, we yield ourselves to God who has brought us back to, to life through the sacrifice of his son Jesus in Romans chapter 6, verse 13. We don't begin with Submission, we begin with faith. We continue with worship. We continue with expectation because that will bring you to a place of submission. And look what it says in verse 11 Give us this day our daily bread. Now, again, think about where we've come from. Our previous petitions are rooted in submission. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In broad categories, the prayer begins with an invocation and then it continues in petition. The petition falls into two broad categories. We petition for God's glory. We petition for man's good. The order is always God first, self second, then the world. We pray for God's glory. His name reveals his glory. Hallowed be your name. We pray for God's kingdom, the future rule of the Father, brought near in the Son. We identify his will, his universal plan, revealed and then obeyed. So our petitions have included thy kingdom come, number one. Thy will be done, number two. And now give us daily bread, number three. By the way, in the original language, it reads different. Give us this day our daily bread reads, This day, bread. My grandmother was born in Mississippi. And my grandmother and grandfather's formative years were during the Depression. And I've told you about my grandma how when commercials would come on TV, like the Campbell's commercial, it would say, stir up the Campbell's, soup is good food. My granny would say, soup ain't good food. Soup's what you eat when you ain't got good food. When Jesus says, this day, bread, the petition seems to be, A request for that which is sufficient. A request for that which is needful. The request seems to be contained not simply in our body, but also in our soul. In Mississippi, they eat a lot of collard greens and grits and what people call soul food. I'd say to my granny, why are we eating collard greens? And why do they call it soul food? And she said, honey, it's because it keeps your body and your soul together in one piece. Bread is basic to life. It's a symbol of survival. It's a symbol of the full life. When Jesus said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. He's talking about a spiritual provision. Is this a request for a physical provision? I think that it is. But basic to human life is real bread. But basic to human life is real hope. You can go on living. And you can go on eating. But you can be impoverished in your spirit. I was reading earlier letters to a Birmingham jail. It's a response to the words and dreams of Dr. Martin Luther King. One of the presenters was John Perkins. I paused when I read what he wrote because he grew up not just a few miles from where my grandmother lived in New Hebron, Mississippi. He wrote, God worked in mysterious ways to prepare my life for engagement with the struggle that you gave your life to and for. His most powerful shaping came in the form of the death of my mother. He writes, I was born in 1930 in New Hebron, Mississippi. My mother died of starvation when I was seven months old. My earliest memory is hearing the words, 
your mother is dead. Even as a young child, I knew that there was something really wrong with a person dying because of the lack of resources to buy food. I suppose this reality set the course of my life, at least subconsciously, Martin, on a track to champion the rights of those who were disenfranchised, the poor. On the planet Earth, one out of every two people go to bed hungry. In the United States of America, one out of every five children go to bed hungry. If we simply talk about black and Hispanic people, it's one out of every three. And as tragic, as wicked, as wrong as it is, there's a deeper hunger. There's a more profound darkness. There's a strange cloud of death that covers our country because they have no idea who the bread from heaven is. Do you depend upon God for your daily provision? This is part of what the passage is saying. It's okay for you to ask God to help you. The Bible says that the rich are tempted to trust their riches. The Bible says that the poor are sometimes tempted to steal. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient. That means the kind of food that I need. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain, it says in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Have you ever heard anyone ever say, I did this in order to survive? But the Bible invites us to ask our Father to meet our needs. We're asked to consider that much of the world is literally starving and that most of the world is spiritually starving. There's a famine for the bread of life and God cares for us. And so again, even as we pray, we begin to understand that he cares about our physical and spiritual needs. And we're given permission, we're given permission to ask for the necessities of life daily here in verse 11. God sent Jesus to the world in a human body. God raised Jesus from the dead in a glorified body. Our bodies are called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it's okay to ask for help. And in verse 12, look what it says. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Bread for our soul and body. Forgiveness for ourself and others. By the way, you may have grown up in a religious tradition where it said, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The Latin Vulgate reads trespass and because it, I think, marks the real meaning in this sense, that it is a sin, that sin is a trespass. Sin is considered in the scripture to be both an offense against God and a debt owed to God and a missing of the mark that's been established by God. A debt is something that is owed. A debt is a legal obligation. And so when Jesus says, forgive us our debts... He's inviting us to consider that we owe God a sin debt. And that our forgiveness of others does not provide the grounds for our personal pardon, but a comparable condition. Remember at the beginning, in this manner, therefore pray. So what exactly is Jesus saying? That our forgiveness of others, is it what provides the basis of our own personal forgiveness? No. Jesus is saying in the same way that God forgives you, forgive others. In the same way that God forgives you, 
forgives, forgive others. How does God forgive you? Does God forgive you apart from Christ? Does he forgive you apart from the gospel? Does he forgive you apart from repentance? Absent reconciliation? I'm going to suggest to you that God does forgive you in love. He forgives you while you're still sinners. He forgives you while you're still enemies. He forgives you when you don't deserve it or when you least deserve it. Petition, bread, becomes confession, forgiveness for personal sin, which generates compassion. The point that Jesus makes is that when you pray the words, forgive me or forgive us our debts, you are acknowledging that there is a debt that you can't repay. You're acknowledging that there is some measure in which in order for God to be satisfied, it's going to have to be something more than just your sorrow. And Jesus will come and he will die for you. He will express his love on Calvary's cross and he'll come back to life. And the point of the passage becomes when you realize the amazing forgiveness that's been lavished upon you, that you'll want to lavish it on others. This is why Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and, and when you stand praying, forgive if ye have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted to each other. Forgiving one another. In Colossians 3.13, it says, Forbearing one another. Forbearing means lifting each other's load. It means bearing each other's burden. Forbearing one another. Forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also you do. And then he continues with the prayer of praise in verse 13. Look what it says. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In our model prayer, Jesus acknowledges we need help. In overcoming the evil one. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. Satan is clever. Satan is called the dragon. The liar. The roaring lion. The evil one. He's clever and determined. Remember where we've come from. We submit to God. Your will be done. We petition God, give us bread. We confess our sin, forgive us our debts. We exercise compassion toward others, forgive others their debt. We acknowledge our dependence upon the sovereign Lord. Lead us not into temptation. And what does Jesus mean by that? Do not lead us into temptation. So many people get hung up on this. I had someone come up to me after the first service. And say, I don't quite understand what is being said. Why does Jesus invite us to pray and do not lead us into temptation? I thought James chapter 1 verse 13 says that God doesn't tempt anyone. And the answer is, it's true in James 1.13. God doesn't tempt anyone. In what sense? In the sense that God does not tempt anyone to the solicitation of, an, of evil. As I explained in the first service, I had to say there are two ways of thinking about the word test and the word temptation. The word temptation in its context can mean a solicitation to evil. Satan, when he tempts you, he invites you to dishonor, disobey, or rebel against God. God never, no never, no never tempts 
anyone in the sense of soliciting them to evil? Does God allow tests? The answer is yes, he does. He allowed Abraham to endure the test of whether or not he was going to sacrifice his son. God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, to the place where I'm going to show you and offer him there. Someone might say, well, that's a, that's a solicitation to evil because he said, kill him. And murdering a person is, in fact, evil. So how can this be something other than evil? And the right answer is, because if God had allowed Abraham to go through with the test, God himself would have brought his son back to life. Because God made a promise. God made a promise to Abraham. He said, it's in your son, in your son, that the world and the nations are going to be blessed. It's in your son that salvation will eventually show up. God never solicits anyone to do that which is evil or that which is wicked. Will God allow tests? He he tests Abraham. He tests Job. He tests Isaac and Jacob. And in moments of honesty, I'm going to suggest that there's probably been times when you've been tested. So what exactly is Jesus petitioning? Jesus allows us to petition our Father to keep us from the awful pull of temptation. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge that we are weak against the world. We are weak against our flesh. We are weak against the devil. And because we acknowledge that pull and we acknowledge our weakness, the Bible says that we can petition God. This is the fifth petition. The Bible teaches us that the believers delivered from the curse of the law in Galatians 5.1, from the condemnation of sin in Romans 8.1, from the bondage or the servitude to sin in Romans 6.18, were delivered from the evil in this world in Galatians 1.4, from the powers of darkness in Galatians 1.13. The writer of Hebrews says that God would deliver us from an evil conscience in Hebrews 10.22. By the application of the blood of Jesus, we pray to be be delivered from an evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3.12. And how do we get our prayers answered? By embracing an unshakable faith in the promises of God and the word of God. We're delivered from this present evil world by living out the promises and the purposes that Christ has for us. There's a reason why this prayer is in here. Not only do we live in a fallen world that hates us and a flesh that conspires against us but a supernatural creature who's determined to undermine us we have to always keep in mind what the apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world In Romans 8.31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it says, therefore you submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Our sins are forgiven in verse 12. We ask God to keep us from sinning Again in verse 13. Remember in verse 12? Forgive us our debts. And for many of us, we live in verse 12. Forgive me again. And forgive me again. And forgive me again. There are two things that are essential to keep us from sin. Number one is deliverance from temptation. And number two is deliverance from the evil one. And so Jesus, Jesus, Jesus invites you to ask your father to keep us from temptation and to deliver us from the evil one. We pray against temptation. And the reason why we pray against temptation is because sin grieves our father's heart and because sin will lead to the most 
terrible guilt and grief, not just simply for ourselves, but for everyone who surrounds us. So what is our prayer and praise? At the end of the verse 13, it says, for yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. This is called the doxology, by the way. Doxa comes from a a Greek word which means to praise. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the doxology. That's praise. Some scholars believe that this was added later because it was used in public worship. We praise God. And so scholars will debate, should it be there or shouldn't it be there? My position is the angels praise God. Because they surrender to his will and it ends in praise. We praise God. Let's ask a different question. Not just simply whether it should be there or not. Let me ask you a different question. Does God deserve our praise? The answer is yes. He deserves our praise. God created us with the capacity to acknowledge him and praise him and give him glory. And then there's a prayer of commitment at the very end. Look what that one final word says. Amen. For most Christians, amen means The end. But for the Jew, the word always meant, so be it. Or so shall it be. When God says amen, it means, I will do what I said I will do. When God says amen, it means, my will will be done. And so the word itself means, Let it be. One little girl said to her mother, Mommy, when I'm done praying, I'm going to stop saying amen in my prayers. I'm going to say RSVP. By the way, do you know what RSVP stands for? You see it all the time. You see, please RSVP. It's actually an expression that goes way back in time in the French they would say, Respondez, s'il vous plaît. Respondez, s'il vous plaît. Do you know how hard it is for Americans to make this kind of sound from their throat? <laughs> it means reply, if you please. Amen is a word ripe with commitment. When we pray the Lord's Prayer and finish with amen, we're committing ourselves to do our part. Think about it. Invocation. Petition. Praise. That's part of our part. A young boy who was quoting the Westminster Confession Shorter Catechism said, Man's chief end is to glorify God and annoy him forever instead of enjoy him forever. But sometimes that's how it feels. Man's chief end is to glorify God and what? Badger him? Pester him? No, it's to glorify him. So what is our part? We pray. What is our part? We pray in humility. We pray in boldness. What is our part? We pray because we're told to pray. We pray as Jesus taught us and the models provided to us in Peter and Paul and John and the rest of the New Testament writers. We pray to defeat the devil. We pray to strengthen the saints. We pray because prayer provides peace and wisdom, keeps us from sin, reveals the will of God. We pray in faith, simplicity, Sincerity in accordance with the will of God. No wonder someone once said, 
pray as if it all depended upon God. Work as if it all depended upon you. The prayer is a guide. The prayer is a guide to see God's purpose, to understand God's blessing in brevity, simplicity, sufficiency. But it's also a test. Do we really love the Lord? Will we really place him first in our affection and ambition? Do we really care about our sin? Do we really care about the loss? Will we examine ourselves? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to generate compassion inside of us for those who've sinned against us? And will we believe God? Will we, will we believe God to answer our prayers in childlike trust? There was a great Scottish Presbyterian preacher who when he would pray, he would go, Great sovereign God of the universe, the self-existent one who occupies eternity. And the little Scottish lady would say, just call him father and ask him for something. (laughs) Every once in a while, we can just tug at the garment in the gates of heaven. Acknowledge our relationship with paternity comes great opportunity your prayers can be answered make a little note right there next week I'm going to do my obligatory resurrection service message for all of our friends who come here twice a year But I need you, I need you to go, oh, Gino's going to come back and he's going to do verses 14 through 18. When all of the resurrection crowd leaves, we're still going to do what we do. And that is study to show ourselves approved so that we can pray and know the will of God and do the will of God. And so pray for next week, for all the people who show up. Pray for the sinner that they'll be saved. Pray for the person who's broken, that they'll be healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we can come and that we can pray with confidence because we have a relationship with you. We can pray in faith and worship and expectation, submission and petition, confession and compassion, dependence all the while, all the while acknowledging that you're the God who can make it all happen. In Jesus' name, amen. And everybody said, oh, and you know what that means now. Let's stand.